Hi guys, water is important and everyone deserves water. Yes, that's why we're gonna just take a moment to talk about the stop line three. And if you don't know about line three, it's a huge pipeline that I think it's like one big company uh, that wants to be building. And one problem with that is they claim as we're repairing the pipeline. However, this pipeline isn't repair because it's going to be built in a different area and the old pipeline will be left alone. So really, they're just building a bigger and better pipeline without actually replacing the old one. It goes through uh, indigenous territory. The indigenous peoples there do not want it. And the big kicker here is that like our government is even saying that there's like no benefit towards it. We don't need it for economic reasons, even the government's like, we don't need it. And this company keeps saying like, oh, well, like, we'll be fine. Like, we're going to do like very, very green and eco ways, but they have a lot of problems in the past with leakage, which is like not what you want from a company. Like you don't want oil leakage across where your water is going to be, where your land is going to be. The take action and Stop Line 3, which is stopline3.org, will of course be in our show notes. And I will again put it in the September newsletter. I've personally signed to take action. There are a lot of upcoming events. There's news, there's a Line 3 film and just other ways. They're really cool handouts that you can use. Like I'm certainly not doing a great job of explaining it, but Their handouts are marvelous. You can print them out, send them to friends who definitely probably should know. Everyone should know about this. But if you have those certain people who are like, let me explain why this is important. Those PDF printouts are amazing. I mean, yeah, I absolutely agree. I think like, why though? What, for what? You did this for what? And like, we're transitioning to renewable energy. So like, why do we need the fossil fuels coming through? I'm so frustrated about this. I am reminded of, I think it's like an Onion article or something. Some other like click hole, fake news. World scientists remind everyone, green energy, ready to go whenever. So let's just, I don't know, stop it. Go look into it. Go learn more things and do what you can. Take action. People have power. It's true. This modern world of science and invention is of particular interest to women. Hello and welcome to Lady History, the good, the bad, and the ugly ladies you missed in history class. Hey Lexi, what's your favorite antique? My favorite antique is anything related to my grandpa's soda company that his family used to own. I like the bottles and the crates and all that paraphernalia. And Haley, how old is your soul? Oh, at least like 2,375 years old. And I'm Alana, and the wonders of the ancient world weren't made by aliens. You're just racist. Oh, can I put on a t-shirt? <laughs> Cross-stitched sure. on a blanket. Yeah, if so those are our t-shirts. Take your internet history lessons with more salt in the Dead Sea. We haven't and made that yet. We need to. We need to. Second merch drop. It's that and the wonders of the ancient world weren't made by aliens. You're just racist. Truly. Anyways, ancient ladies. Are we ancient ladies as archaeologists? Kind of. We're 
aspirationally ancient ladies, people aspiring to be ancient ladies. Except I don't want to have to eat ancient food, y'all. No. That stuff nasty. Like, I was thinking like moles, but are you talking about just like recipes? Yeah, like you know how sometimes in the archaeology world, someone gets a good idea that they're like, let's analyze the chemical compounds of the food that was made in this container we found. You can and say you can say the wine at Cabri. It's fine. Yes, that's <laughs> one of the many. But then they're like, what if we make this food in now times? And then they make the food and it never is good. It's like always tastes like ass. Yeah. And I, I feel like it's probably just making it wrong. Like they like think they've got to figure it out, but they, there's actually something in the cooking. There's like some something out. different. Yeah. yeah. I will say, and I, I know we're talking about ancient ladies and my roots started with the ancient world. But like I'm really getting into some contemporary things and some contemporary, like where contemporary artists are bringing like the past and like reinventing I, it. Yeah. I'm obsessed with it. Oh, I'm, I'm so excited. Today, I will be talking about poet Yu Shanqi, whose surname means fish and whose given name loosely translates to dark secret or mysterious luck. And can I just say, what a dope name. Like, I think you are set up for being cool for life with a name like that, like mysterious luck fish or dark secret fish or some variant of that, like pretty cool. And apparently that name uh, is really rare. It's not a common name. So she just was meant to be special. Shanxi was born in approximately 844 CE and died at the age of just 28. So she had a very short-lived existence in the 800s CE. Though she had a short life, her remarkable poetry has been preserved for centuries, obviously, since we have some of it still today. She lived in China during the Tang Dynasty and was known by the nicknames Yu Wei and Hualan, which mean young and profound and orchid, respectively, which I think are very nice nicknames. So she, all around, she got a good deal in the name department. Good nicknames, good real names. She became a concubine to a government official when she was 16. But because he had several concubines, she was basically just the one with like some cool talents that entertained the family, but she didn't have much value. And the official's first wife didn't really like her. So she sent her to be a nun at a temple. And I once again get to say my favorite Hamlet line, get thee to a nunnery. My grandpa used to say it all the time. I think it's hilarious. Basically, she lived and worked at a temple, but the definition of nun in her Taoist religion is very different than the definition of nun in Christianity. So she wasn't a nun in the Western sense. She was very adventurous and independent and traveled and such. She was known for being sexually adventurous. And this has been said to have inspired some of her writing. Though many stereotypes suggest that women in ancient China had little access to education, this is not always the case. In families where men decided women in the family could be educated, the girls were able to study. John Chi was lucky enough to be in one of those households, and that is how she learned to write. She has, by some historians' accounts, been called China's first openly bisexual woman. The only reason we know anything about Zhang Qi and her work is that some of her poems were collected for a book of 
quote, strange, unquote, poetry, including works credited not only to her, but ghosts, priests, foreigners, and yes, even other women. Her poems are largely about her relationships, travels, and her spirituality. Historical records suggest that at the age of 28, she was accused of strangling her maid to death in a fit of jealous rage. That's crazy. My fantasy theory that obviously cannot be proven is she and her maid were hooking up and then her maid went out and like cheated and was like playing around and she was like, you bitch. And then they had gotten into a fight. Not justifying, that does not justify. I'm just saying that's how, that's the drama. That's the tea that I live for. That would be good. I would love to see a Chinese drama made about that. There probably is one about her, but I'm not really versed in Chinese dramas, so I don't know. So she was supposedly tried and executed for this crime. However, as we know, accounts written hundreds and hundreds of years ago and written hundreds and hundreds of years after the fact when the events occurred. As archaeologists, we see this all the time. They can sometimes take on legendary qualities, incorporating fiction or the own author's biases into once factual lives. We see this with Greece and Rome a lot. We get like these scholars who hundreds of years later, and it's our most like contemporary account. That's kind of how her story was written. So you have to take some of it with uh, the salt as we were talking about earlier. So modern scholars think that this particular account of her death may actually be a reflection of the attitudes towards women who were independent and sexually active, not just in their marriage, but outside their marriage, during the eras when the accounts were written. So basically the authors who were men were saying, ladies, don't be frisky or you might end up a murderer. I don't see it as a one for one, but okay. English speakers are able to enjoy John Chi's surviving work today thanks to the recent efforts of a writer from Singapore, Leonard Ng, who has translated her available poetry and not all her poetry survived, but he's translated everything that has survived. And you can read the poems on his site and I will make sure that Alana has that link to include in our show notes. I use it as one of my sources. So you can access that if you want and read all of those. They're really cool poems. They're very hip and timeless and like if someone told me that like an angsty 20 year old wrote those today I believe it (laughs) so emotions human emotions stand the test of time humans across centuries and civilizations and continents are essentially the same and that's why I'm an archaeologist kind of knows this gal, Lexi, does not. But Saint Olga of Kiev is someone you may know the name of because of being a saint and she has statues or commemorations from all around. I found her through those like late night scrolling of history fun facts and for two reasons I could not sleep afterwards and I had to go through her like Wikipedia. One, she led an exciting, luxurious, and somewhat terrifying life to there's a lot more information about her life than I expected. And this is the time of the Byzantine Empire being alive and well. And she was supposed to be born around 890, died 969, common era. So like, again, ancient ladies, grain of salt. Some of these like writings and what we talk about will be people writing them from hundreds of years later as if they were there 
at that one instant in the bathroom stall with Olga like as she powders her nose but alas that's not what we have and with that I'm going to open this history book to the part where this descendant of Vikings or the indigenous people known as Baryagas or Varajians proved that women could rule with ruthlessness and she executed a ruthless revenge attack against those who killed her husband Igor or the Russian prince of Kiev. Little footnote here, he was captured and murdered by the Drelvians. So sorry for the mispronunciation. Even Google Translate was no help because he made a military whoopsie. And like, you know what, whoopsies happen, but the revenge was strong in Olga. Firstly, she was able to do this because she remained in power as her son was very, very young, uh, a young boy of three years old. So she ruled for him a la Hatshepsut that we kind of did in a previous episode. Secondly, she was amped because the Drevlians immediately were like, nah, hon, you're at a disadvantage because you are female and a male needs to rule. So they tried to convince her to marry one of their princes. And like, there was even like a petition of nobles pushing her to do this, which is kind of creepy. But like, you know what? We're gonna move past and go to Olga being the sneaky snook she was. And yes, OMG, the quote I found was quote, your proposal sounds pleasing to me. And this is from the history collection article in the show notes. So that's apparently what she said, just being like, the sneaky woman she was following along with this game. She did tell the prince or whoever nobles came to her with this really weird proposal saying she had to announce it to Kiev, but she still had to be faithful to her land and like as ruling it for her son that they needed to know. So the Drelvians were like, yeah, that sounds cool and left, I guess, back to like their camp or wherever they were kind of located for the time being. And it was then she started to prepare. Guys, this is so insane. This is, this is where it gets really juicy. The first delegation of them came back the next day and were led into like the castle or like the palace or wherever Olga was by her guards. The guards promptly dumped them into a ditch, boat and all, because that was something she could pull off. And in this ditch, that was just made the day before when Olga is like, all right, I got a scheme. They were buried alive. So <laughs> Olga had the audacity to go to the prince then and say, well, they didn't impress me. Try again, buddy. Silly prince sends her another fleet of men. This group, however, was set on fire, being led into her bathhouse under the guise of being able to wash up. Like before they came to be like, I'm actually here to impress you. This is like the prince's proposal, yada, yada. So the prince was still not connecting the dots that his men weren't just chilling at her palace in defeat and that they couldn't convince her like of marrying him, but just dead, flat out dead, being buried alive in a ditch or burning in a bathhouse. So to add some salt to this margarita, Olga sends a letter saying that she was coming for him and that she also wanted to hold a feast in honor of her late husband. So Prince Mal, who is the 
prince in question here. Uh, said, yes, of course, coming to the party. There's this huge feast where everyone got wasted, including the Drelvians and like Prince Maul. But when getting wasted comes getting killed in Olga's playbook because she ordered her men to kill them. Just like Red Wedding Game of Thrones style, I'm assuming. Couldn't find much. But it's estimated that 5,000 of them died that day after just getting completely hammered at this party. And basically afterwards, there is still some hostility between like the two areas, more deaths, and then they surrender to Olga because like she just, at least 5,000 people were dead because of her, probably closer to like 8,000 once she was done because I'm assuming these fleet of men were by the hundreds and that there were more deaths after. So after the surrendering, she still remained regnant until her son was older. And through this, she was gaining the respect of so many. And she became a Christian by accident, then became a saint. But I, I'm i going to say that's a story for another day. And I propose we do stories of women who became saints, because there, there's some of those out there. And that's also like another wild story of how she just became a Christian by accident and then became a saint. And now she's like hailed as as such a saintly and like godly human around the world, especially in uh, like Ukraine, Russia, Eastern Europe. But that's St. Olga of Kiev. Both stunned. I am blown away. Right? Like this was the most unprofessional story I've ever done because I couldn't help but like, laugh giggle like in awe i was reading this 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 is nuts okay so heads up i won't actually have a lot of sources because a lot of this stuff i just know count of being a huge egyptology nerd and this is actually the lady who inspired me to go into archaeology Uh, There are books and further learning that I already owned uh, prior to this research. They are just at my parents' house and not with me. And I would have used them as primary sources if I had access to them. According to my Thrift Books account, I bought them in 2015. And a lot of the museum-related sources are pretty roughly translated from German for reasons that I will get into when we get there. Uh, Basically, what I'm saying is the sources are for the listeners, not me. Nefer Neferuata Nefertiti lived in the 14th century BCE or the 1300s BCE. I get confused on that concept, so I try saying both. Uh, And a lot of the specific dates are just unknown because the historical evidence has either not been found yet, archaeology, uh, or just doesn't exist anymore. Uh, I would say at this point, she is one of the most famous queens of ancient Egypt, although primarily because her husband, Amenhotep, the fourth, a.k.a. Akhenaten, uh, was known for changing Egypt's state religious practices from polytheistic, meaning worship of multiple gods, to monotheistic, meaning worship of one god uh, or deity in general. Uh, but that was short-lived and kind of ended up with both Akhenaten and Nefertiti being basically stricken from the historical record, which is part of why we don't really know Nefertiti's specific dates. That and the fact that this all happened over 3,000 years ago. I am having 
such a hard time balancing saying nothing at all and just info dumping for 45 minutes because I absolutely adore this ancient dead woman so much. A lot of what we do know about Nefertiti and her place in the royal court comes from art of this time period. A source on that specifically will be in further learning that in looking for a link to it, I found out that you could just download a PDF of from the Met Museum's website. So we love that. Um, basically, we see Nefertiti and Akhenaten depicted at the same scale and kind of androgynously, which is a whole thing that you can look into the androgyny in art in uh, the Amarna period, which is what this time frame is called because they moved the capital to Amarna, which was a different city um, in ancient Egypt. Nefertiti was Akhenaten's chief wife. Uh, he did have others, as was common in ancient Egypt, but Nefertiti was like his queen, his number one. And there is some evidence that they ruled as equals. They had six children together, all girls, and it's totally possible that Nefertiti and Akhenaten's eldest daughter, Meritaten, would have been next in line for the throne if things had gone the other way and Egypt hadn't returned to polytheistic worship. That is a massive oversimplification, but there's only so much I can say in so little time without assuming too much of what the audience knows about this topic, and I am trying so hard to be accessible. Basically, in the time between Akhenaten and Tut Tutankhamun's reigns, which is not a lot of time, there are two distinct kings named Smenkere and Smenkere, Smenkera, and Nefer Neferuaten, which was, if you'll recall, part of Nefertiti's name. So there is also circumstantial evidence that Nefertiti was just straight up pharaoh for a hot second there. There is a very famous bust of her in Berlin, Germany, because colonialism, and which is also why my museum sources are translated from German. Where we are now in the archaeology is that in 2017, some radar scans of King Tut's tomb found like a secret hidden chamber, and people were like, it's Nefertiti, but it turned out to not be. So what's up with her? It's still a mystery. Uh, she wasn't an alien, though. I'm sure of I'm sure of that. She was just a person of color who did cool things. So racists think she was an alien. I am including mostly nonfiction for their learning books, but I'm also including Nefertiti by Michelle Morin, which is a historical fiction book and one of my absolute favorites just in general. I genuinely could keep going, but I have had a very long week, so I will leave it at that. I also feel like I talked really fast through that one, but that's okay. <laughs> You can find this podcast on Twitter, TikTok, and Instagram at Lady History Pod. Our show notes and a transcript of this episode and our merch will be on ladyhistorypod.com. If you like the show, leave us a review or tell us on Patreon. And if you don't like the show, keep it to yourself. Our logo is by Alexia Ibarra. You can find her on Twitter and Instagram at Lexi B. Draws. Our theme music is by me, GarageBand, and Amelia Earhart. Both Lexi and Haley are doing the editing. You will not see us and we will not see you, but you will hear us next time on Lady History.
Welcome, Lady History. We're talking about some ladies who turned into saints. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Guess who I'll be doing next week? 